Let's direct our attention now to the Word of God, to the book of Samuel, which by the way, in the old Hebrew scriptures, it's known as the first book of Kings. Did you know that? Second Samuel is second Kings. Second Kings is third Kings and second Kings is fourth Kings. That's the way it's listed. These are the book of the Kings. And that's because it has to do with the bringing about of the kingdom in Israel. Now let's look at chapter 3. We're looking at Samuel, the young boy that's been brought to the temple, I mean to the tabernacle to serve the Lord under Eli, the old priest. And here is uh, an episode of great moment in the life of God's people. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So Samuel went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew before his sons were blaspheming God, but did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am. And Eli said, What was it that the Lord told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do, to you, do uh, so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli, and, and, uh, Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, 
For the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of the Samuel came to all Israel. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you ever use that little blank page in your bulletin that has sermon notes, you may want to sketch out these three points. You don't hear me preach three-point sermons too often, do you? But this one I just couldn't resist. The outline just sprung up before me. (laughs) First item is rarity of vision. Rarity of vision. The second is revival of prophecy. And the third is revelation of God. First, rarity of vision. The scripture says right off the bat, says the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no frequent vision. This is what happened to Israel. It's about a 350 year period between the days of Joshua and the days of Samson and then Eli and Samuel, and then eventually Saul and David. Three to four centuries, no revelation in Israel to speak of. Just little words, a word to Gideon here, a word to Barak there, a word to Samson over here, a word to Deborah, and some of the other judges. But can you imagine for more than three centuries, for the most part, prophecy was silent in Israel? Now, they had the law, they had the books of Moses, they had probably some of the ventures of Joshua, but no fresh word, no new word. The, the word literally means that it was, it was sparse, it was scattered abroad, it was thinly distributed throughout the land. There was a word here and there. We saw a man, a prophet, come to Eli earlier to, to pronounce this horrible vision that the Lord repeated here in this text to Samuel. So there was some prophecy, but not much. Not much at all. Do you recall another time in Israel's history when there was a vacancy of prophecy? It was toward the end of Israel's time as we read about it in the Old Testament. After they had gone into Babylonian captivity, they came out of Babylonian captivity and rebuilt Jerusalem and rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the temple and settled in the land in the restoration period. And then there was a period of about 400 years, again, three plus centuries when there was no prophet in Israel. No prophet in Israel. It's interesting that both of these great periods of silence that we find in Israel was part of the determinative act of God. It was part of the punishment. Amos lets us in on the secret years later when he says, There's a famine in the land. It's not a famine of bread, but it's a famine of the hearing of the Word of God. That's one of the judgments that God brings upon a people when after generations of powerful preaching and gospel preaching and revival and the Word of God and repentance and faith and Christ is lifted up and people ignore and people dismiss and people turn a deaf ear And people become more entrenched in their sins and more ensconced in their unbelief. God just quietly backs away. Leaves them to themselves. Leaves them 
to their devices and leaves them to the consequences of a society without the light of the revelation of God. In both of these periods of silence, when there's a rarity of prophecy in the land, a rarity of vision, God raises up a couple of men. In our story today, he raised up Samuel. And you know the story of Samuel. We've, we've told it to you the last three weeks. But during the other dearth of prophecy, God raised up another prophet, John the Baptist. Notice how similar their lives were. They were both from priestly family. They were both of godly parentage. They both were of the heritage of Israel that was the faithful remnant. Both the parents of Samuel raised him in the fear and admonition of the Lord and gave him to the Lord. And he was a Nazarite before the Lord. Same is true with John the Baptist. His parents, of course, were of the priestly lineage, his father and mother. His mother was a descendant of Aaron. In fact, John the Baptist, they each had a unique upbringing. One was taken to the presence of the Lord at the tabernacle at Shiloh for his upbringing and his raising and his training where God would, would, would eventually reveal himself. And Samuel would come to know the Lord. John the Baptist was in the desert where God raised him. He too, a Nazarite in his vows where God would impress upon him the truths about himself. Both men, raised in similar circumstances, received the call from God to go forth and to minister. And each man, in his own way, anointed the king of Israel. Samuel, as we'll see as our story progresses over the weeks, came to anoint King David, the man after God's own heart, the picture of the shepherd king, the righteous king, the godly king, who would in many ways prefigure Christ. John the Baptist would come to anoint Christ himself. Did you realize the baptism of Jesus was also an anointing? That's why I'm convinced that the proper mode was sprinkling, because anointings were given to cleanse and to fill and to empower. And as soon as that ritual had been enacted, the Spirit of God came and the voice of God spoke in manifestation that the Spirit of the Lord now and the anointing was upon King Jesus. So there you see God breaks His silence by bringing forth these two men of the barren womb, both of the priestly house, who came to preach to the people and bring the word to the people and eventually to anoint the king of Israel. In the second place, we have in Samuel the revival of prophecy. If prophecy and vision had been rare in Israel, this was the revival of it. We've seen how little Samuel served Eli because he did not know the Lord. He knew Eli. Eli had become old and decrepit and heavy and couldn't get around. And I imagine poor little Samuel spent many of his days fetching things for the large and immobile man, Eli. 
And he had learned so much from Eli because Eli's heart was always right with God. Eli's heart was always tender and always aware of the presence of God and the things of God. Eli just lacked courage and he lacked a lot of the things that he needed to discipline his own family as we saw last week and the week before. Even when God called Samuel, and by the way, I won't digress today, but almost every significant spokesman for God has a special call. Abraham, Noah even before that, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Paul, the apostle. There's a a sense in which God specifically calls these men to this ministry of a prophet. And so as prophecy now is about to be revived in Israel, God has brought forth this boy. Notice he's called the boy Samuel, but as our text begins today, now the young man Samuel was ministering before Eli. This is the revival of prophecy in the land. God had called Samuel to begin a lineage, a spiritual lineage of prophets. Now the call to be a prophet was a call. A priest, you were born into it. You were born into the priesthood. You had to be of the family of Levi and of the house of Aaron to be the, to be the priest, the high priest. But you could be of any tribe. You could be of any family in Israel and receive the call to be a prophet. The king would be of the tribe of Judah. The priest would be of the tribe of Levi. But a prophet could be of any tribe of the Lord's choosing and the Lord's calling. Because the prophet had a special place. The prophet was the spokesman for God. He spoke for God to the people. He specifically had a primary audience, which was the king, the royal house. He would speak to the king. And prophets in Israel were lawyers. They were the prosecutors of the covenant law. And they would bring the cases. In fact, Malachi and a few other passages of the Old Testament prophets are set up like legal cases. Points of prosecution and points of accusation are brought against the people on behalf of God. This is an incredible office. We've looked at the office of priest. We've looked at the office of king. Now this is the office of prophet. And Samuel begins a new lineage. Let me sketch the lineage for you. First of all, the immediate sons of the prophet, not literal sons, but men who studied under Samuel, were the prophets Gad. Anybody remember Gad? (laughs) And his companion prophet. Often you see the prophets in pairs. Two by two is kind of God's way of doing things. That's a side issue. But the the paired up with Gad was the prophet Nathan. You remember the prophet Nathan. He's the one that spoke to David and told the story about the lamb and Bathsheba and all of the things there. These were students of Samuel. 
But it didn't stop there. It went on down through the years. They began to speak to the kings. We have a, a generation of another pair, Elijah and Elisha who were what's called an ecstatic prophets. They didn't write any material, but they spoke the word of the Lord in a dynamic way and they confronted the king and the king dared not go to battle without consulting with these prophets. And they did miracles. Elijah had this incredible ministry of miracle and might and power. In fact, he was seen as a mighty man of prayer and a mighty man of action in the life of Israel. And Elisha, his protege, had a double portion of the blessing of God when the mantle fell upon him. Following these ecstatic prophets in the land, there were the great writing prophets. I'll just mention one of each of the great epochs of time, the great Assyrian era, when the major enemy and eventually the conqueror of Israel was Assyria, headquartered in Nineveh. Numerous prophets during that era and that period of time, their chief spokesman was Isaiah. During the Babylonian era, that is when Babel, Babylonia became the, the, the chief enemy of Israel and eventually conquered Israel and took Israel captive, the prophet during that period of time was Jeremiah. And close behind that, a young prophet who actually went into captivity with God's people, the prophet Ezekiel. Then when God's people came back out, of captivity back to the land. We had the last prophets mentioned in the Old Testament according to our order, and that's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the, the prophets of the exile period after the exile, the post-exilic period of Israel. You see, there's an unbroken strain of these prophets from Samuel to Malachi. Godly men, men who had been part of this revival of prophecy. The third point is the revelation of God. It was the intent of God to make Himself known. And we see this here in this last couple of verses. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him, and none of his words fell to the ground. God did not let anything fail. See, God's attitude toward His Word is this. As the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither but watereth the earth so that it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth, the Lord says. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish the thing whereto I sent it, and it shall prosper. That's God's attitude toward His Word. His Word is His way of working God created the whole universe by word, by speaking. So the men that were called upon to be the conduits of the word of God had a double sacred duty to be faithful to the Lord. And the Old Testament is filled with warnings. In fact, I was reading through some of them this morning and I thought it'd be a good exercise just to take a half hour and read through those warnings about the prophets who are speaking a false prophet. One of the things that strikes me is the prophets were reprimanded for preaching out of their own hearts. What's wrong with preaching out of your heart? I don't know how many times I've heard a preacher stand up and say, let me tell you what's on my heart today. Well, that's because if it comes out of your heart, it didn't come from God necessarily. And God wants us to preach His Word no matter what's in your heart. 
I don't know how many times I felt one way and preached another way because I felt like this, discouraged, disgusted, angry, depressed. But God's word was a light and a torch and a beam and a beacon of the character of God shining into a dark world. And so I had no choice. There are a lot of times I didn't preach. Most of you know my testimony. I didn't preach. Didn't pastor a church except some small churches for 25 years. I left the ministry. I sat in the pew just like you're sitting there for 25 years. Best years of my life I spent out of the pulpit. But let me tell you what happens. Fire gets in your bones and you cannot stay. You cannot be quiet. You got to preach something. You got to tell somebody something. And so there's a lot of things about the, the heart of the prophet. And the Lord brings these men and calls these men and then he puts a burden. Most of the time when I preach, it feels like a burden. I've got to, to unload upon somebody. I know everybody's not listening. <laughs> people only hear a word here and a word there. I've been, listen, I've been in communications long enough to know that people listen to about 10% of what you say and they remember about 1%, if anything. And usually what they remember is the funny story you told. That's why I don't tell too many funny stories. Or the magnificent illustration of the flowery thing, the cute thing, the personal thing. Not all has its place for purposes of illustration sometimes, but that's not the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes up out of the page because God's word is inspired. It means literally expired. It means it's God breathed. It's breathed out. The spirit of God becomes the scriptures of God. God's word, God's breath, God's spirit breathing out becomes that which the prophet preaches and that which the prophet records. And that's the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. The Lord promised in the Old Testament He was going to send a prophet. Of course, He sent just a whole lot of them. But let me read about one of them. In the book of Deuteronomy, God was talking to Moses as Moses, of course, who was a prophet. Moses was talking to God and Moses was talking to the people. And there was kind of a back and forth and a lot of discussion going on. And then finally, the Lord says to Moses, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from among your brothers. Moses gives this word to the people. He says, there's going to be a prophet someday. He's going to come right out of your ranks. He's going to come right out of Israel. He's going to come right out of the people of God. He's going to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. That's why we believe in verbal inspiration. It is the words of God in the mouth of the prophet when it is authentic. This, by the way, was repeated to Jeremiah. The Lord said to Jeremiah, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, 
that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's how seriously God takes his word. When he puts his words in the mouth of the prophet and the prophet preaches, then God requires it of you. God has already delivered the message. You have been served. And now the onus, the responsibility is upon you. The watchman has faithfully delivered the message and his hands are clean. Who is that prophet? Well, I think you know. It's Christ, but let me give you a real strong verification of that. The book of Hebrews starts off, if there ever was a prophet coming out from the Hebrews, from out from among the brothers, out of the people, it's of course Christ. And listen to the way the writer there starts. Long ago, and we're certainly dealing with long ago, we're dealing with a thousand to 1500 to 2000 BC. It goes back, back, back. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Many times, God spoke to Abraham in his call and in his visions to him, his meetings with him, Moses in the burning bush, Samuel, David, can go on and on and on through the Scriptures. All the way through, we see God still speaking. All the way through the exile and all the way back into the land, God speaks to the fathers, to the ancestors by these prophets. And the Scripture says, in many ways, He has spoken. It's an interesting exercise to count the ways in which God speaks. The burning bush, all kinds of visions, all kinds of illustrations, he spoke to the prophets in strange ways. He called upon them to do strange acts. Many times it was just direct speaking to the Lord. Sometimes it was in a vision and a dream. All kinds of ways God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But then the contrast is made in these. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. There's that prophet. That's the prophet the Lord was talking about to Moses. He's like Moses. He's a lawgiver. Sermon on the Mount, teaching like Moses on the Mount, teaching. But he's a son. He's not a servant. He's a son. And it's Jesus Christ. And that is, that is the prophecy that God has given. Let me say a couple of words about the prophecy. God revealed Himself by inspiration with authority. Did you get that? God reveals Himself by inspiration with authority. God reveals, that's what the Scripture said there, said God revealed Himself to Samuel. The very last verse, or verse 21. The Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for he, the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the Word. Not by vision, not by a burning bush, but by Word. Direct, verbal teaching. The Lord put His words in Samuel's mouth. 
And God reveals himself. We don't discover God. He's past finding out. He's inscrutable in all of his ways. He's, he's unknowable in an ultimate sense. The only way we know anything about God is when he pulls the curtain back and gives us an apocalypse. That's what the word means, a vision. We can see. And God makes himself known. It's one of God's gracious acts to mankind is to give us his word, to show us himself. God did this by word in the prophet, but he has done this by flesh, incarnation in Christ. God has revealed himself. He that hath seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. God reveals himself by inspiration. We spoke of that a moment ago. It's God breathed. It's breathed out. It's the Holy Spirit. The scripture says that the holy men of God wrote as they were born along by the Holy Spirit. They used their words, their vocabulary, their history, their family relationships. They knew it, used everything personal about them. They were as incarnate in the flesh in their teaching in the Bible and in their writing as Jesus was truly in the flesh in his humanity. Authentically Jonah, authentically Ezekiel, authentically Jeremiah. But yet, he was borne along by the Spirit of God in such a way that they wrote the very words of God. In other words, as Dr. Warfield has told us now for a century and a half, what got written was what God exactly wanted to get written. That's our understanding. And because of that, it is with authority. What Scripture says, God says. There's formula in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came into some prophet saying, thus saith the Lord. And hear Jesus say, verily, verily, I say unto you. Why is it important that we have this word, this more sure word of prophecy? Why is it we must have the word of God? That's because we are dead in our sins without it. It is the word of God that revives us. We are born again by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. And if the Word of God engenders in us life, and the Word of God lives and abides forever, then we, by regeneration of the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, live and abide forever. It is the source of our eternal life. These words that I speak to you, they are life, said Jesus. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If you don't have the Word of God coming to you through the inscripturated Word and the preached Word, you have no life. You're in a famine. You're in a desert. You're in a dark cave. I'll go so far as to say you're probably in a grave spiritually. But the Word of God comes. Where there's deadness, it brings life. Where there's darkness, it brings light and life eternal.